When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. Stephanie, I can't believe I forgot. I was going to, I had a prop for today, but I forgot it. I was going to hold up a Rubik's Cube and be like, when's the last time you saw one of these? Well, that's okay, because I remember what a Rubik's Cube looks like, but I don't know when I last saw one. So I think it's been a long time. I got one for our family a couple of years ago. It was a total impulse buy. And I was like, oh, cool. This will be a fun thing that we can do. You know, everyone can play around with. And I was like, I'll figure it out. And I throw, there's some like hints or whatever that come with it, throw them out. Total act of hubris. I'm like, how hard can this be? It's got a very set, set number of variables. I bet I can solve this on my own. It doesn't look that bad. So you threw out the directions. How did that go for you? You can guess not well. (laughs) I mean, I was able to piece together one side of the cube and I could see how to like move a piece around, but I think that solving a Rubik's Cube with zero background, I think it would be akin to showing up in a foreign country with no prior knowledge of the language and within a week being able to get by speaking it. I'm sure there are people that have minds that can do that. I am not one of them. And so for the most part, the Rubik's Cube has sat on a shelf since I came to that realization. Until? My brother-in-law... He somehow got on a Rubik's Cube kick and for Christmas, he was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get a bunch of Rubik's Cubes and I'm going to make the kids sort of like a cheat sheet guide to how to solve them using these different algorithms. And Tep, totally my eldest, he totally dives into it. He's super psyched on it and his cousins are psyched on it. And I'm watching this and right then I have this realization about two things. One, I'm an idiot for ever thinking I could solve that with no pointers. And two, even with algorithms and knowledge and the instruction guide, it's easy to mess up. The Rubik's Cube is not that simple. It made me realize just how complex some of the big things we're trying to solve as humans are. You know, like the Rubik's Cube, it's got a set of parameters to it. And the big issues that we try to solve, they don't. They're complicated. They're complicated, and there's a lot of human emotions. We've got a story about a problem that at first glance, it kind of seems simple. There is a river. And it's not just any river. It's the greater Colorado. Right. It's definitely not just any river. It's like if we were announcing the Colorado River for a sporting event, it'd be like, and now in this corner comes the Colorado carver of Grand Canyons, creator of Glen Canyon, which we, of course, flooded. But, you know, whatever. It's like the most badass river ever. Totally. It's it's very badass. And now after years of drought and how we manage the water, there's just not enough water to meet all the needs. In 2022, the river advocacy organization American Rivers named the Colorado River the most endangered river in the United States. 
you've probably seen some of the news around the Colorado. Lake Powell is hitting all-time lows. We've seen the pictures of the houseboat marinas. There are debates between the states over water rights because 40 million people rely on the Colorado. 30 federally recognized tribes, seven states, and Mexico, they all pull from the river. It supports incredibly important wetlands and habitats for fish and birds. It supports a huge economy, $1.4 trillion, $26 billion of which is generated through recreation. And the bottom line is there just isn't enough water to meet the demand and needs of the entire basin. And something's got to give so the entire system doesn't collapse. Today on The Diaries, we follow river advocates and adventure paddlers Mike and Jenny Feebig on their five-month paddling journey on the Colorado from its source in the Wind River Mountains all the way to the Gulf of Mexico to understand the river's challenges firsthand. And we talk with experts who are working tirelessly to find a solution for a very complicated problem. I'm Fitz Cajal. And I'm Stephanie Maltrich. And you're listening to The Dirtback Diaries. Rivers, rivers really changed my life. They've been really important to me as an adult. I, uh, you know, moved out to Colorado in 1997 to go to graduate school at CU Boulder and just happened to pick up a, a river guiding interview trip on the Upper Salt River um, for five days. And I wasn't sure I wanted to be a river guide, but I really wanted to go on the Salt River for five days um, at cost, basically, to interview for this this guiding company. And I got the job and started guiding, and it changed everything in my world. I dropped out of graduate school, I started living in a truck, started guiding year-round, and then guiding led me to Knowles and teaching outdoor education and doing some science on the river too, and, and which eventually led me to, to go back to graduate school to get a degree to work in river conservation. So it it's kind of an inflection point, it really changed the whole course of my life, just picking up that, that one trip in 1997. This is Mike Feebig. He's the director of the Southwest River Protection Program for American Rivers. His love for rivers changed his life, and it also led him to his wife, Jenny. Then I met Mike. He was a big boater. <laughs> and so I just kind of got exposed to it. I never guided, but I, I got exposed to rafting and kayaking. But for me, it was really, being on the river is really powerful and just that that presence and yeah, I just I I just found myself falling in love with river ecology and river environments. The two met at a boat takeout along the Green River while working as outdoor educators for Knowles in Utah. Rivers brought them together and have been a part of their relationship ever since. And so the rivers, I feel like they they not only brought us in connection with one another, I mean with both of our histories, but I feel like they helped to deepen our connection. You know, when things start to get too chaotic here in the in the real world with paying mortgages and credit cards and things like that, for us to be able to get out and connect on the rivers, and it really slows us down and helps us to really deepen our connection with one another, with our with ourselves, but also with one another. After rowing the same rivers year after year as a guide and outdoor educator, Mike started to notice the rivers and surrounding ecosystems changing before his eyes. It was actually... Uh working for Knowles and, and taking students on whitewater kayak and rafting courses down Desolation Canyon that really started clicking in my mind that we needed to do more work to protect rivers and wild places. We watched the Tavaputs Plateau above Desolation Canyon go from, you know, a remote area that was mostly full of pronghorn um, to just this massive oil and gas field and eventually oil and gas wells that you could hear um, down on the river, in the river corridor. Seeing the rapid changes motivated Mike to study natural resource policy at the University of Montana. And after graduating with a master's degree, he worked in climate change mitigation for the federal government. And in 2011, 
his dream job popped up with the river conservation organization, American Rivers. Mike worked to defend rivers from dams, mines, and oil and gas developments in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. He also advocated for new wild and scenic designations, along with many other river protections. In 2015, Mike realized that in three years, he'd be eligible for a five-month sabbatical from his job. So he and Jenny started planning for the trip of a lifetime. We've always had a dream to do a long trip together, and and specifically somewhere on the Colorado Plateau, because it, it's just a powerful place for both of us, and we're, we're drawn to it. So we decided, since the Colorado and the Green Rivers were so special, that we've, we've always wanted to do a source to sea river trip, and we're like, this is our chance to, to do it. Jenny and I talked a lot about that a few if you really love something, you want to see all of it, right? You don't just want to see the most beautiful parts. You want to see the whole thing. So this was our opportunity to see the whole thing. And we wanted to do it all at once, too. The upper river is a much more wild river than the lower river. Most rivers, when you paddle them source to sea, you start out on this little tiny creek almost. And the river gets bigger and bigger and more powerful and you pass all these tributaries getting coming in. And then by the time you reach the ocean, the river's massive. It has this huge floodplain. It's miles across. You know, you have these bigger ocean life and, and, and that feels like the natural way of the river. The Colorado River doesn't do that anymore. You know, it, it, it's more like a, a reverse hourglass. You know, it starts small in the headwaters and builds and builds and builds. And then after it hits Lake Powell Reservoir, it starts to die. The conditions along the Colorado River were changing fast. Mike and Jenny knew this trip would allow them to experience the river before it changed even more. A mega drought across the West put the health of the Colorado River at stake and a century-old water agreement between seven states set the stage for the over-allocation of the river's water. New this morning, for the first time in 99 years of recorded history, a water shortage has been declared for parts of the Colorado River. Every year since 2002, we have watched Lake Mead shrink, each year hoping it was just a fluke. But now 20 years later, we know it's not. It's a 20-year drought. The Colorado River is a critical source of water for the western United States, but a mega drought, one significantly exacerbated by climate change, is jeopardizing that river's future, how the water gets used, and threatening long-standing agreements between states. So, the Colorado Compact. Uh, Stephanie, will you break it down for me? I think it's important to start by saying that while the major infrastructure along the Colorado is federally managed, States, tribes, and Mexico are the ones who use the water. So in 1922, the federal government and the seven states that rely on the Colorado River created an agreement that would determine how the river is allocated between states. I should say that the compact is only one of many laws and agreements and settlements shaping how the river is divided. But today it's used as the foundation of decision-making as water managers and policymakers try to figure out how to manage the river's future. So you're saying that when there is a decision to be made, we rely on this document from 100 years ago. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? 100 years ago? That was a long time ago. Yeah, there were probably about the same amount of people in this country then, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Nothing has changed. So the states that are a part of the compact are divided into upper and lower basin states. The upper basin includes Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico. The lower basin states are California, Arizona, and Nevada. And when the compact was written, officials looked at the total flow of the river in million acre feet and basically divided it in half between the upper basin and lower basin states. For a little bit of context, one acre foot is enough to supply two households of four people with water for one year. Today, the states still rely on the amount of water that was agreed upon in the compact, but a lot of other issues are getting in the way. The population has grown exponentially in the West. Climate changes altered the amount of water in the river. So a law that dictates the use of the river that was written, you know, 100 years ago in 1922, in many ways isn't really working anymore. Mm -hmm. So so what are some of the ways that the water is used? 
Yeah, I learned a lot while reporting this story. I learned something pretty surprising, that the majority of water used in the Colorado River Basin, about 70 to 80 percent, is used for agriculture, like ranching and farming. Water from the river irrigates over 5 million acres of land, and the vast majority of water reserved for agriculture goes to growing crops to feed livestock like alfalfa. The river provides hydropower from the dams that run the entire length of the river, States from California to Nebraska benefit from the Colorado River hydropower. A smaller portion of the river is reserved for municipal use, you know, like water used in cities and towns for drinking, sewage, lawns, stuff like that. And and Mexico also uses it, right? Mexico does use it, yes. Um, but what's interesting is Mexico wasn't included in the original compact, a decision that's been heavily criticized since the river runs through Mexico and drains into the Sea of Cortez. I mentioned earlier that the compact is not the only law dictating how the river is used. You know, there have been several settlements and agreements and amendments made to the compact over the years. Like in 1944, the U.S. and Mexico signed a treaty that gave Mexico rights to 1.5 million acre feet of water. Were states um, taking more than their share? Like, how has everyone sort of abided by the agreements? The short answer is yes, but it's complicated. Since the compact was written, the lower basin states, so California, Nevada, and Arizona, have often taken more water out of the river than the compact allows. The compact says they're entitled to 7.5 million acre feet, and the lower basin regularly uses that full amount and then some. And California has always used more water than any other state. In contrast, the upper basin has never used its full allocation, as it's outlined in the compact. You combine increasing demand with decreasing supply, classic economic problem, and you can see you're headed for some pretty big issues. Um, How are the states grappling with it? So kind of to understand that, we have to back up a little. The West is now experiencing a mega drought, which started in 2000. Climate scientists and hydrologists are saying we've moved beyond drought and have entered what's called an aridification of the West, meaning less water in the West is the new normal. And climate models suggest things could get worse as flows in the river are projected to decrease even more by mid-century. Once water managers realized the West was in a drought, the states and the federal government got together in 2007 to make a plan in case the drought continued to decrease flows in the river. The result was the Colorado River Interim Guidelines, which made a plan for states to cut water if key reservoirs reached critically low levels, meaning they'll no longer be able to produce power. And no one imagined we would reach these levels so soon, but we did in 2020, triggering water cuts in lower basin states as they were outlined in that 2007 agreement. Aside from the population explosion in the West, you know, the, these issues that we are seeing today are really rooted in a dismissal of the actual conditions of the river when the compact was signed way back in 1922. To understand more about this, I talked to Jack Schmidt, Jack is a director of the Center for Colorado River Studies at Utah State University, and he's worked on issues relating to the Colorado River for over 40 years as a river scientist. His goal is to help people, water managers, policymakers, make informed decisions about the river's future. The most important question in the basin is how do we balance use with supply? Jack is not scared to critique the system of allocation because he knows it's not working. We now know that the river was going through an unusually wet period in the early 20th century. And after about 1930, the river sort of returned to more of its natural or average that had been characteristic of the 1800s. Today, you'll hear many water managers and scientists say, there's more water on paper than there is in the river. Hydrologists have warned about this since before the compact was written. And according to Jack, there's 30% less water in the river today than when the Colorado Compact was written. Jack compares our consumption of the Colorado River water to misusing our bank accounts. Well, for the last 20 years, we have been consuming more water than is the natural supply of the watershed. And we got, have gotten away with that for 20 years because we had a large amount of water in our savings account. And that savings account is Lake Mead and Lake Powell, where 80% of the watershed's water is stored. 
And so we've just chugged along sort of spending just as much as we've always spent, except the income has gone way down. We've got nothing in the savings account, and we just don't know how to cut and reduce our use. And so that's the crisis. The crisis is that we don't have an adaptable system that lets us respond with big, quick changes and up. Everybody's going to have to use less right now. It's been a dry year. Jack sees one solution moving forward as simple. States need to agree to consume less water. While he admits climate change and drought are a big part of the river's problems, human consumption is the bigger issue. And that's something we can change. When Mike and Jenny started planning their five-month journey from source to sea, they had to figure out where they wanted to start. The main headwaters are located high up in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado and Wyoming. Interestingly, you know, until the early 1900s, it was the Green River and the Grand River. When they met in Canyonlands National Park, then the Colorado started at what we call now the Green and Colorado Confluence. That was changed. And, and interestingly, the Green River is longer by mileage, but the Colorado River above the confluence is bigger by volume, but shorter by mileage. So interestingly, you know, we wanted to start at the longer of the two tributaries, not only because we wanted to be out longer, but because we had all these connections to the Green as well. With Mike's sabbatical on the horizon, they started planning early for their source to sea journey. And if you've ever applied for a permit to raft sections like the Grand Canyon or Gates of Lador, you know that getting that actual permit requires a good amount of luck. They decided to take a chance on one single permit, the Grand Canyon. They asked 120 friends to apply for a trip that would begin in August of 2018. And whether it was good odds or pure luck, they secured the permit. We got our maps out from the winds all the way to Mexico and went mile by mile thinking, okay, so we have to get to the Grand Canyon at this date. How long will it take us to get there? And so we had to really estimate every single mile of the trip. And we're like, wow, these, there's a lot of miles. <laughs> Nearly 1,800 miles. In addition to planning their itinerary, they also had to focus on the endless logistics, shuttling their van and trailer around dams and reservoirs, planning meals and food drops, running their house, and getting ahead on five months of bills. August 8th, 2018. It was Mike and I and Emma, our dog, and we got out of the van, put on our backpacks, and we're like, okay, this is it. So yeah, we just started hiking up, and we hiked, I think it was about 20, 25 miles to the to the headwaters. Yeah, we, we, we followed the named Green River all the way up to Dale Lake at the head of the valley. And above Dale Lake, it was basically snowmelt still then, even in August. We got to this lake, and, you know, the Green River was coming out of this lake, and it was just a couple feet wide. And we're like, wow, we're going to see this from the beginning, and we're going to watch it grow and we're not sure what it's going to look like at the end, but it was pretty incredible. It was a pretty powerful moment just for us and our dog up there. Setting up camp that evening near the lake felt surreal. It felt like one of those times when there's like so much in front of you, you know, couldn't imagine the end. Like we're, this is amazing. We're going to be out here for this long. You know, it just seemed like it didn't have any bounds to it. Although these headwaters begin as a trickle, they are very important when thinking about the Colorado River as a whole. In the western U.S., depending on exactly where you are, you can get up to 80 percent of your water from snowmelt. And so, of course, the closer you are to the mountains, the more water you get from snowmelt and the more you rely on it. Dr. Mackenzie Skiles is an assistant professor in the geography department at the University of Utah. She's a snow hydrologist who spends a lot of time skiing into remote mountain basins where she digs snow pits to collect data. And what that means is I study how much water is held as snow in the mountains and uh, when and how fast it will melt. And that's really one of the things I focus on is, is what impacts melt rates. And 
zooming back out a little bit, how those things are changing over time. So over the multi-decadal scale, using satellites and other observations, trying to understand how, how the mountain snowpack is changing. Most of Mackenzie's work is focused on the upper Colorado River Basin, or the headwaters of the river in Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah. She explains that in headwaters communities, the snowpack in the mountains acts as a natural reservoir. It's where water is stored before it melts and transported downstream. It's how we've made the whole system of the Colorado River work. The way that it works is that a lot of the Western U.S. is very arid. And so we've built up these big infrastructural systems that can take snowmelt from the mountains, which is just a, a vast and really consistent natural reservoir. Every year we can rely on snow to build up in the mountains and melt out in the spring and summer. And we've built up the infrastructure to leverage that, to bring it from the mountains, to bring it downstream to these communities uh, that wouldn't normally get that much water. Mackenzie and other researchers have found that the snowpack at the headwaters of the Colorado River is changing a lot. The mountains are getting less snow. It's coming more in the form of rain and melting earlier. Overall, about five less days of snow each decade. Snow melts faster because of, one, warmer temperatures, and two, because of a phenomenon Mackenzie calls dust on snow. Dark particles of dust that land on the snow make it melt faster. And all of these factors are pretty problematic in the Colorado River system because less snow means less water. And as stress on the Colorado River system continues, those at the end of the river will be the ones who see huge impacts. The people in the upper basin are probably okay for a while. We're still gonna get snow. You know, it's not disappearing in 10 years. There's been a lot of talk about low snow or no snow futures, but ultimately the mountains are still going to get snow for a while, especially the high elevation ones. But what's that's going to impact is is the lower basin and downstream communities. While McKinsey stresses that even if people have water, the surrounding landscapes and ecosystems will suffer the most. I think we have to separate out, you know, water for human use and water to keep the places where we live livable. We have to be able to provide water back to the landscape as well as maintaining our own water needs. So if we say, oh, the headwaters are doing fine, I would argue, yes, maybe the humans are getting the water they need, but who's losing in that scenario is the landscape. And that is going to come back to bite us later. And so it's, it's dangerous to assume that anywhere is not being strongly impacted by drought and, and anthropogenic changes. After the break, Mike and Jenny make their way across the dams. Stay with us. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries once again that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries the link is in the show notes please check it out from the headwaters mike and jenny paddled down the narrow and rocky green river on pack rafts when the river was wide enough they transferred to their custom-built plastic dory appropriately named the green river more versatile than a raft or a pack raft the boat was more durable while paddling around rocks and through rapids and it was a lot more efficient for paddling across the reservoirs, the infrastructure the federal government built to store water. And with each reservoir, there was a dam. Yeah, the, the logistics were really complicated, and, and, and not least of which, because there are 11 dams on, on the green in Colorado that we had to portage, basically 450 miles of those, that nearly 1,800 miles, was us rowing across or, or paddling across reservoirs. So mostly rowing across in our dories. So we had to get portaged around every single dam. And we looked at a few different options for that, but the easiest thing 
was to have our rig shuttled to each dam and left there at the closest takeout near the dam. And then we could just show up whenever we showed up, portage around the dam ourselves and leave it and have a time when, you know, other friends could come and show up and drive it to the next one. And it was pretty incredible. We had we had a lot of amazing friends help us out with this. Mike said some of the hardest days were rowing across the reservoirs. In addition to motorboats speeding by and creating huge waves, the headwinds were usually consistent and very annoying. Mike remembers one particular day when things weren't working out as planned. And in order to do it and still make the amount of time we had to get to the next place where someone was going to pick us up and drive us around a dam, we had to row 37 miles of flat water in a day in a headwind. And that was challenging. It was, it was like, it was rowing from dark to dark, but it was good. <laughs> we had a, we had a few days like that. A lot of our reservoir days started at 4 a.m. Um, and ended around, around noon because, of afternoon winds, you know, they'd they'd create huge waves that were too dangerous for us to row. As they rode hundreds of miles across nearly a dozen reservoirs, Mike and Jenny took note of the water levels. Mike remembers the levels being low and noticing bathtub rings around the canyon walls and the rocks along the shore. Four years later, these issues have gotten much worse. Since then we've seen the water storage infrastructure essentially bottom out. You know, we've had incredibly dry years and we're seeing uh, predictions of, you know, 20 to 30% less water than we have now due to aridification by 2050. Things have changed a lot. I mean, even in 2018, with the warning signs, no one thought that at this point we'd be talking about, you know, whether Lake Powell could stay above power pool, like whether we'd lose the ability to create hydroelectricity, and whether in our lifetimes we'd be heading down toward losing hydrologic control of the reservoir, potentially, you know, down to Deadpool. It's been really crazy to see the change. You know, it was on the cusp then, but it always felt like something we'd have to deal with in 20 years, not something we'd have to deal with in just a couple in the future. Okay, Mike mentions 11 dams. What are some of them? The biggest dams in the system are Glen Canyon and Hoover Dams, and those created Lake Powell and Lake Mead the two largest reservoirs in the United States. Upstream from those lie some other key dams on some of Colorado's biggest tributaries. Flaming Gorge Dams, the Green River near Utah and Wyoming border. The Aspinall unit is a series of three smaller dams along the Gunnison River in southwest Colorado. And the Navajo unit is located in northern New Mexico. And there are plenty more dams in the entire basin, but those are some of the big ones. And, you know, what, what purpose, what are the dams doing? They do a lot. So the Colorado River Storage Project is a federally funded initiative that passed in 1956. And the goal was to create infrastructure to store water and irrigate farms in the upper basin. Each dam has a reservoir that many people refer to as federal buckets of water. The water is stored for if and when it's needed downstream. And the dams also produce hydropower for millions of people living in cities and rural communities in the basin. And lastly, the reservoirs also support a lot of tourism, like lots of boating, fishing, and camping. All these activities take place on the reservoirs, and some are managed by the National Park Service or even local state parks. And this year, we've all heard about Lake Powell and Lake Mead in the news. What's going on with those reservoirs right now? I thought Jack Schmidt said it so well when he compared our water use from the Colorado River to taking money out of our savings accounts. So all the reservoirs, not just Pal and Mead, are super low. I live near Blue Mesa Reservoir along the Gunnison River, and it's barely recognizable from when I moved here a decade ago. That being said, the reservoirs have done their job, as outlined by the federal government. Over the past few years, Mead and Pal continue to reach record low levels. It almost feels like they hit a new low each month. The concern is that the reservoirs will reach minimum power pool levels, which means they'll no longer be able to generate power that millions of people rely on. And when they started approaching these low levels in 2020, the federal government had to enact what's called emergency releases 
meaning water from the reservoirs upstream was released to keep PAL and Mead at their operational levels. This happened in 2021 and again in 2022. So we keep drawing water from the reservoirs upstream, lowering their water levels, and a lot of them don't have much to give at this point. Looking ahead, there's a lot of concern. A recent projection said that PAL could lose ability to generate hydropower later this year if the allocation of the river doesn't change. It's almost like, you know, there's the savings account metaphor, but it's almost like, in truth, we've started using a credit card where it's getting harder and harder to dig out of the hole. Yeah, absolutely, which is never a good feeling. And aside from risking our power supply, these low water levels have drastically changed recreation opportunities in the reservoirs. Like some marinas have completely closed because they've lost access to shorelines, concessionaires have shuttered their doors. We've also heard some other weird stories like bodies showing up in Lake Mead near Vegas and old sunken boats have resurfaced. It's all pretty hard to believe. Mike and Jenny rode their dory across reservoirs, down rivers, and through canyons. They were joined by friends, but they also spent a lot of time alone. As weeks turned to months, they grew even more connected to the place and the landscape they had known and loved. But in addition to craving solitude and this once-in-a-lifetime adventure, they also wanted to hear from others and why they felt connected to this place. They knew many people relied on the river, ranchers, farmers, dam operators, tribal members, water managers, boaters, and scientists, the list goes on. So they made a pact early on that they would say yes to anyone who invited them in or who wanted to talk to them. And so so we did interviews along the way and collected stories and, and asked about people's connection to the river. And it was interesting because the connection to the river, people's, people's experience of that didn't seem to to differ. You know, most people cried around their connection to the river, whether it was this big old rancher or, you know, a, a river guide or, you know, a, a miner. And so people's emotional connection to the river really didn't shift. But most people were pretty aware of, hey, people are affected by my choices and my actions up here. There wasn't a single person that we met that didn't want to sit down next to the river and have a conversation and crack a beer and watch the sunset over the water and watch, you know, swallows turn into you know, night hawks, turn into yeah. bats, turn into the moon rising. You know, it, there, there are just so many universals that all of the, the polarization just kind of slipped away. Some of the people and their perspectives even shifted how Mike and Jenny saw certain parts of the river. They remember one evening on Lake Powell. There was a hurricane system that came in, so we had a lot of rain. And on Lake Powell, we had lots of rain. And so we're rowing our boat, and we don't really have shelter from the rain, except for our rain gear. But anyway, we were tired coming into this uh, into the Escalante. And we were so excited because we thought we had this little cove to ourselves. And we pulled in, and sure enough, there was a big houseboat parked right, you know, right in the middle. And we're like, dang it. <laughs> but then uh, we started pulling away, and... These guys were like, come over, come have dinner with us. At first, we were like, no, thanks. <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. there's... It was like 12 guys on yeah. this boat, you know, <laughs> yelling at us in the dark. And we're like, this is the way bad horror movies start, you yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we looked at each other and we're like, well, we said we'd say yes. And so we said yes to these guys and we start rowing in slowly and as we're rowing in, they're singing, like they're, they're an acapella group. And so they're singing to us <laughs> as we're rowing up to this houseboat. And so we tie up the dory and walk in and they hand us this amazing plate, like heaping plate of food. The last thing I'd expect out of a group of 12 guys and, and they fed us cold beer, which we hadn't had in a long time. And, but it turns out it was a, a group of men that met in a therapy group like 20 years ago, and they get together every year to do a trip. And, and a lot of it's based around water. And so we stayed up with them way late in the night, hearing stories and poetry and songs. And it was... Yeah, it was really impactful. You know, I'd never really spent time on Lake Powell as someone that loves free-flowing rivers. You know, I'd always had this kind of recoil to Lake Powell. Um, 
and and I'll admit, you know, prejudice against houseboaters and stuff, and and um, this really turned it on its head. And after leaving those guys, you know, you know, it kind of shifted both of our perspectives on. I and Powell was beautiful. I just I have to say it. I mean, the the canyons and are gorgeous there. But the next day, we 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 pulled over and watched a family of otters swim and eat fish and and play for a couple hours. So it just kind of solidified it's it's not the water's fault, it's not the canyon's fault that humans dammed it. It can be powerful and magical, you know, despite human intervention. While making their way downriver and engaging with dozens of people, they often thought about one group of voices in particular that had been left out of conversations relating to the Colorado River since the beginning. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that tribes have been mostly left out of this discussion, and we're all collectively hoping to change that. It's unconscionable that they've been omitted from a lot of these water management discussions. My key message is, is that sovereigns in the base and tribes along with federal and state governments need to be at the decision-making table. Tribes have senior water rights to at least 25% of the current natural flow of the Colorado River and have historically been excluded from decision-making or consulted only after decisions have been made. It is my sincere hope that, that, the, that the attention and the action of this com- committee represents the beginning of, of a new chapter in the management of the Colorado River, a chapter in which tribes are treated with the same dignity and respect and responsibility as other sovereigns in the basin. That was Daryl V. Hill testifying at the House hearing on Colorado River drought conditions in October of 2021. Daryl is the Tribal Water Administrator for the Hikaria Apache Nation, located in the northwest corner of New Mexico. He also co-facilitates the Water and Tribes Initiative, an organization that connects tribes in the Colorado River Basin to engage in water policy discussions. I, I like to call myself, you know, kind of the accidental water guy. You know, I'm so grateful because water gives me voice and water gave me purpose. He started paying attention to conversations about the Colorado River over a decade ago when he learned about a study being coordinated by the federal government. The Basin-Wide Supply and Demand Study was a response to the ongoing drought and spike in population in the region. The goal was to better understand these issues and how they might shape the future of the basin. For Daryl, the study shed light on an important fact, that the 30 sovereign tribes in the Colorado River Basin had rights to a huge chunk of the river. And when I got started to get involved, you know, it was like, wow, you know, 25% ownership of the river, and we weren't invited to participate, and we weren't included in that conversation in any shape or form. This news didn't sit well with Daryl. So he rolled up his sleeves, took on several leadership roles, and started working to get tribal voices a seat at the table. But then we got inclusion of disclaimer language that said that the broader basin study didn't adequately capture tribal water rights and, and tribal water in the basin. And that was the, the, the springboard to a couple different things. That was the birth of the tribal water study, you know, initiated through the 10 tribes partnership. And even more importantly than that was you know, kind of the development of of a relationship with the federal government that didn't exist before. The Tribal Water Study created the opportunity for formal conversations between the tribes and the federal government for the first time. But despite the spark in conversation, there wasn't much action. And over a decade later, the legacy of exclusion continues. And so if you can imagine, you know, most tribes, you know, didn't get to engage in formal governance structures till the 30s, didn't get to vote until the 40s as recognized citizens of this United States. And like with my tribe, didn't get to settle water rights until 1992 and didn't get to develop them, you know, and started to, to refine the development of those, you know, over the last, you know, 30 years. And so most tribes in the basin being I mean, 100 years behind in the policy paradigm that exists right now or the structures that exist right now. And and the reason I say that is because in 2022, there is still no structuralized place for tribes to, or or formal place 
for tribes to engage in the policymaking process at all, at, a, at the federal level or at the state level. And so, you know, I've, I've talked a whole lot about this over, over uh, the, the number of years that I've been involved because um, it's, it gets to be really unconscionable in terms of like an absolute inability, you know, to, to speak on behalf of your own water rights. Today, about 22 of the 30 tribes have settled their water rights, but many are behind on the infrastructure required to bring water to their communities. Like on the Navajo Nation, about 40% of people don't have access to running water. Daryl sees the tribes in the basin as an important and essential voice in making decisions about the Colorado River moving forward. Indigenous people have lived on the land for over 10,000 years, which Daryl explains as 343 generations. They've survived drought and other changes in the environment, and their traditional knowledge and practices could help the basin think outside the box to find new ways to address the ongoing crisis. And understanding, like, we don't want to take anything away from anybody because we absolutely know we know what that feels like in terms of, you know, having something taken away. And in terms of uh, not only the land and the water, but your very identity and then and, and at the heart of who you are as a people. Mike and Jenny knew from the beginning that they wouldn't be able to paddle all the way to the ocean. Most years, the riverbeds that fan out in the delta are bone dry. In our minds, we were expecting that, but I don't think emotionally we were expecting that. So we started in pack rafts up in the, the Wind River Range. As soon as we had enough water, we switched to our dory, rode that the whole way until the river wasn't big enough for the dory anymore. Switching back to their pack rafts brought every issue facing the river and the basin front and center. It also brought up issues of inequity. Who gets water and how will shape the fate of the river. You know, we, we could row the dory until Imperial Dam. And not coincidentally, at Imperial above Imperial Dam, the All-American Canal takes out the bulk of the Colorado River water and pipes it over to... California to uh, feed the agricultural industry that we all we all benefit from. You know, if you eat leafy greens in the winter here, you're you're uh, eating Colorado River water. And ironically, we probably only had that much water to there because that water had to go to California. You know, it's owned by by those folks. So it was really interesting, and I still I don't think I fully wrapped my mind around it. Their original plan was to backpack into Mexico. But because of high tensions at the border, they changed their plans. They rented a van and spent the final two weeks camping alongside the Colorado and volunteering with nonprofits who are working on restoration projects in the Delta region. You know, so after the U.S.-Mexican border, I mean, the river goes dry. And so there, there are pockets where, where water does seep up here and there. But it's just, it's, to see, I mean, it's, it's still emotional for me. Yeah, to, to be, you know, to live on this river for so long and to watch, you know, just to watch this, the ecosystem rely on it. And, and then to get to the Delta and to see a dry riverbed and a bridge going over a dry a riverbed, um, it's, it, it, it's devastating. And yet at the same time, what what the people in that region are doing with what they have is absolutely incredible and hopeful. You know, to watch a community of people have not much water and salty water and what they are able to do with that was incredible. So it gave me a lot right. of hope. On the winter solstice, 146 days after beginning in the Wind River Mountains, their journey ended when they reached the Sea of Cortez. Like any long expedition, it ended with a combination of highs and lows. The rhythm they had developed with each other on the river didn't really translate to life back at home. It's still hard to come back. <laughs> I just want to be back out there. Yeah, we, we didn't want it to, to, no. to end. You know, the, the goal... The goal for us, I mean, of course, we wanted to see the whole thing and finish the trip and, and go source to sea. 
Um, but mostly we, we wanted, we wanted to live out there, you know, and after you're out for five months, it becomes kind of just what you do. That's your, that's your life. And we wanted to keep going. We didn't, we didn't want it to stop. And to be out for five months too, it's, we just really noticed how our mental health changed and our connection to each other changed and our connection to the environment changed. For me, it made my work very real to see this stuff in person and to feel it and to, you know, have the, have like the, the grit of the, the silt of the reservoirs, you know, staining all of our stuff. I mean, some of our gear still has silt stains that we got during, uh, during that source to sea trip. Yeah, it made, it made the river conservation piece and both the, both the ecological piece and the human piece very real. You know, it's not abstract. I feel like sometimes if you have a science background, you read this stuff and you know it to be fact, but it doesn't have the same weight and impact as uh, when you see that human pace and you experience it and you meet people and see wildlife that are impacted by it. And yeah, made it very, very real. Really motivated me for my work. So since Mike and Jenny finished their trip in 2018, things have only gotten worse. Are there any solutions being presented? Everyone who's connected to the river is definitely working hard to try to save it. That's for sure. And there are a lot of solutions on the table, some big, some small. And I'm sure there's countless ideas that I'm not even aware of. The urgency of the past few years, you know, reservoirs hitting these record low levels, thus triggering unprecedented water cuts, have created a new sense of urgency. But there seem to be many roadblocks, including a lack of leadership and what seems to be a stalemate between the states. But federal officials recently said that cuts will have to come from every state and every sector. Upper basin states feel like it's up to the lower basin states to set the example. And the lower basin states, Nevada and Arizona, seem to be pointing the finger at California, the state that consumes the most. Others think the federal government should just step in and mandate cuts. And this summer they tried. Kind of. Last June, the federal government gave the state 60 days to figure out a plan to cut water across the board, two to four million acre feet. The deadline came and nothing happened. The upper basin states presented a five-point plan, but according to critics, none of the points outlined cutting their water allocation. So the states didn't have a plan to cut water, and the federal government didn't respond with any consequences, and no one seemed very surprised. And the process seemed to further highlight tensions between the states. And once again, tribes weren't included in the process. But regardless, mandatory cuts are going to go into effect for the second year in a row, as outlined by the 2007 drought guidelines, and an addendum that updated that plan in 2019. Arizona will have to reduce its reliance on the Colorado River by 21%, Nevada by 8%, and Mexico by 7%. California doesn't have to make any cuts yet. But these cuts hardly seem effective because the reservoirs are still struggling. As of today, the federal government announced it's pursuing what's called a Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement, and the results could allow them to make adjustments to the rules agreed upon in the 2007 interim guidelines. The statement will be released in the spring and finalized in late summer. It will likely spur more discussions between the feds and the states. Or it might be the thing that makes the federal government step in and mandate much larger cuts across the board. Those seems like pretty big uh, solutions. There's like system system wide solutions. Um, are there things happening on a smaller scale? There are definitely smaller scale solutions being talked about. You know these these bigger ones. You know seem simple, like states should cut water across the board. But these smaller ones that are being proposed, you know, are really more targeted. Since agriculture makes up 70 to 80 percent of the water consumption, there are many projects that are working to update irrigation practices, like with newer technology that may conserve water. There's also a lot of new money, $4 billion outlined by the Inflation Reduction Act, specifically geared toward the Colorado River and new solutions. Some of that money is already going toward what's called demand management, which pays farmers and ranchers to use less water. And there are so many more. People have talked about covering the reservoirs to prevent evaporation, 
piping water from the eastern side of the country, creating desalination plants to convert saltwater to freshwater, finding ways for cities to be more efficient. A big one here is like discouraging lawns. And Las Vegas has seen a lot of success here. And, you know, regardless of all these solutions that are on the table, everyone agrees that tribes and their ideas and solutions are imperative as well. I know these solutions can feel slow or abstract. And I think the biggest thing I've learned is that these things are happening fast and we don't have a ton of time, but maybe reaching a crisis point is what will lead to action. Jack Schmidt, who we heard from earlier, sees the solutions as twofold. I don't personally think there's any alternative except to have strong federal leadership because the states may be incapable of reaching collaboration because everybody depends on the river so much. And there's nobody that can come in above all else and say, okay, we're making the decision for you. He also says the basin needs cutting edge ideas that, in his experience, aren't always available when working with the limitations of a bureaucratic government. There is a certain conservatism necessary to get seven states to agree on anything and have the federal government participate in that. And therefore, there's a certain need for an edgy outside influence to keep moving the conversation. Daryl Vigil sees the situation as dire, and, and nothing less than monumental change will get the job done. We don't need anything incremental. We need transformative. And in order to be transformative, it needs to be built on, in, 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 in the foundation of a collect, the collective values that, you know, that I've heard over and over again that exist in the basin, but aren't able to be exercised because the structure won't allow it to. Daryl also sees the solutions as an incredible opportunity to determine the future of the people who live in the basin. Wow, we have an opportunity to like really determine who we want to be into the future as human beings. You know, where we live, how we live, how we feed ourselves, and all those kind of things. The way the Colorado is managed is watched worldwide. It's a it's a bellwether for how highly managed rivers can adapt to climate change or not. It supports a $1.2 trillion economy, 40 million people, numerous protected areas, you know, 30 sovereign tribes and their sacred sites. I mean, it's, it's a complicated, important, uh, critical region that, you know, whatever we collectively decide to do, we can't afford to fail. You know, we have to get creative and collaborative and we have to do it now because we're we're right on the edge of collapse but we can't fail this has to succeed there are too many people too many ecosystems too much wildlife too many special places that rely on on this river and its water it's a big deal you know some of these things feel so big and so intractable you know whether it's the law of the river, you know, the collected body of, of water law that we're all subject to, or the 1922 compact amongst the states. But I think it's important for us to remember that it's all a choice. We choose all of it. And we can choose something different. You know, like we can choose, we can choose a different vision of the future that's more equitable, that's more collaborative. And we have to do it now. Thank you, Mike, Jenny, Jack, Mackenzie, and Daryl. We couldn't share these stories without your perspectives. Since we finished work on this story, the seven states submitted proposals for reducing water consumption. As you might guess, those proposals do not agree on who should bear the brunt of reductions. It's likely that the administration will step in, and it's likely that litigation will ensue whatever they decide. And as this plays out, there's a good chance that it will impact us all in small maybe big ways. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story, we please give us a shout. You can use a submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Graham Barton, Sun Shapes, Memory Place, Joey Cantor, Matthew D. Morgan, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Track Club. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. 
This episode was produced and edited by Stephanie Malterich and additional editing from Becca Cajal. Fact-checking by Zach Podmore. Illustration by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cajal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.